today's scripture reading will be Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. If you would stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will not command the clouds that they rain. Sorry, I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. All may be seated. Today we're going to be in John chapter 15. John chapter 15. So today we look at the seventh of seven I am statements that Jesus makes. In the book of John, Jesus uses uses this phrase, I am something, I am the door, I am the vine, I am whatever else. And we've already seen how this phrase, when he says this, he's talking about himself as Yahweh, as the God of Israel, as the one who is the I am. It's a, it's a reference to that. So before we jump into this passage, let's give a little bit of a background so when we read this passage, we understand what's going on. Uh, let's open up in a word of prayer real quickly, and then uh, we'll get some background into what's going on in this passage, and then we will move towards uh, most of the sermon that is going to be application-oriented uh, because of the, the nature of this particular passage. Let's pray real quick. Lord, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for the faithful who have come out to to be here to serve you and worship you. Uh, Lord, I pray against the work of the enemy right now. That's right. Um, Lord, I pray that you would take me out of the way, that it would that Lord your word would shine through, that it would not be uh, me or any any sin that I'm bringing to the table, Lord. That would be that would be clearest, Lord. But Lord, it would be your word that would be most clear. Lord, I pray that we would be submissive to your word. That I would be submissive to your word as we go through this passage together. In your name, amen. Amen. So as we'll see in this passage, Jesus used this phrase, I am the vine. So what does that mean for Jesus to be the vine? What is he getting at? What's he talking about? Um, This vine analogy is very, very common in the scriptures. We just read one passage out of Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah uses this vine imagery several other times, as well as Ezekiel. uh, in, in, in Isaiah chapter 5, uh, as we saw here, the, the vine is the people of Israel. And it says, and basically God says, hey, you were supposed to make grapes, and instead you made wild grapes, or maybe the better translation might be sour grapes, right? You didn't yield what you were supposed to yield. So what does God do? I'm going to take down the hedge, everything that's keeping it protected, it's going to get devoured, it's gone, right? 
Um, and and uh, so this is, this is what happens to this particular vine. In Psalm chapter 80, we have a continuation of the same idea. In Psalm chapter 80, this, this vine uh, analogy is used as well. It says, To the choir master according to, uh, according to uh, lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. He, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. You who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. This is again Psalm chapter 80. For Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine, that we might be saved. O Lord of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine, that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass through the way may pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the sun whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, may they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man who you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you, give us life. And, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This idea of the vine then, in Psalm chapter 80, this vine then is not connected with Israel, but rather connected to the Son of Man, who is the true vine. Mm -hmm. And Jesus picks up on that same exact thing. Jesus makes this claim. I am the true vine. I am the true Israel. The real fulfillment of the nation of Israel is Jesus Christ. We've seen Jesus do this throughout the Gospel of John. He's fulfilled the feasts. He's fulfilled the law. And now he is fulfilling the very nation itself. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. So when he says, I am the true vine, this is what his audience was hearing. He's saying, I am the real Israel. I am the one that will bear real fruit, that will bear much fruit. I won't bear wild grapes or sour grapes. I'm not going to bear... Uh, I'm not going to need to be torn down and thrown away, right? I am the true vine, and I will bear fruit. I will, I will succeed where Israel has failed. So that, that can help us kind of understand what's going on in this image then, um, where, where Israel continued to be a vine which did not bear fruit or bore sour fruit. Jesus is the true vine who bears fruit, and as we see in this passage, bears much fruit. There's a little bit of an issue when we get to this passage. You'll see in, in, chapter, in verse 2 it says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. We'll get into what this all means. We'll talk about this in the, in the, later in the message. But there's, a, there's a, uh, this phrase, in me. This question is then, is, is Jesus suggesting that there are people who would be Christians who would stop being Christians or would lose their salvation and be thrown away? That's not what Jesus is actually saying. So let me, let's, let's explain this. This is, this is not talking about losing salvation. Um, 
Compare this also in verse 5 where Jesus makes a similar statement. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So there's a distinction drawn between in him and abiding in him. Right? So uh, one thing we need to be careful about is that is, is what, he, what is going on here is true believers will bear fruit. We've seen that before. Jesus made statements very similar to this. A true believer will bear fruit. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as a believer that does not bear fruit. So then what does he mean when he says, in me? Right? This, uh, in verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. What is that talking about? Um, the, what we need to warn against is we need to warn against taking every detail so literally that we come up with false doctrine, if you know what I mean. The scripture is clear that you cannot lose your salvation. So we need to think, what does Jesus mean by this, right? He, this, this analogy in, in this particular place is somewhat a little more loose, if you will. It's a more of a loose analogy. Um, basically, what this is getting at is that there are people who would claim to be believers or would think that they might follow Jesus, but really are not following Jesus. And that's shown by the fact that they bear no fruit. Okay? So this is talking about these people, these, these branches that are torn off and thrown away. They were never believers in the first place. They were never actually believers. So that's all we, we need to understand. This is not losing your salvation. This is showing your true colors, if you will. Uh, this, when, so when Jesus says they're in me, he's not saying that they were part of the vine, that they were Christians in that sense. He's saying that they are false Christians. And we've seen that before in John. Right? We've seen that many times. People who claim to be believers, who claim to follow Jesus, and says, you don't really follow me. You're not really believers. This is just following the theology that John has already set up. So we need to be careful when we come to this passage that we don't go to wrong conclusions. Verse 3 then clarifies the issue in verse 2. Uh, look at verse 3. It says, already you are clean because, the word, because of the word that I have spoken to you. Verse 3 then clarifies verse 2. Those who are true believers are already clean. Right? He tells the disciples, you are already clean. You are already bearing fruit. They are already clean and they are already fruitful because the life of the vine is already pulsating through them. So Jesus said, you are clean. Why? Because my word abides in you. Because, because of the word that I have spoken to you. Sorry, Jesus' word then, what is that? It's Jesus' teachings. It's his very being. It's his own actions. Everything about Jesus, when he says, my, t- my words abide in you, or, 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 that, or because my words, um, because, uh, because of the words I've spoken to you, that's why you were clean. It's because of the very person of Jesus Christ. It's everything about him. That is what clarifies uh, who is a believer and who is not. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, the word is with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the word of God. So when he says, my word has been spoken to you, it's I have given myself to you. So to be, to have the word spoken to you is to be a part of the vine, right? It's to have his teaching, to have, uh, to know who he is, to have his being, his, his life is attached to you. He is the word. So that clarifies then the people who are clean, the people who are fruitful are the ones who are in the word. Right, or are already connected to Jesus. And those are ones that will have fruit. Um, another uh, important word to know as we walk through this passage is the word abide. The word abide is used in this passage 11 times in only 17 verses. In, in, in any, any kind of Bible study uh, mindset, 
repeated phrases, they're usually pretty important, right? If he uses the same word 11 times in 17 verses, probably for a pretty good reason. So we need to understand, what does it mean to abide? I think Nicole used a really good translation of that. She said the word remain. Maybe we may also use the phrase to be faithful, to abide in Christ. For him, to, it's, it's about faithfulness. To, to Jesus. It's about him being faithful to you, you being faithful to him. It's, it's faithfulness, covenant connection that takes place there. So the word abide, is when we, as we read through the passage in a second here, this is what it means. It means to be faithful to Jesus, to remain in him. Another thing to understand about the structure of this passage then, verses 1 through 8, explain, uh, ex- they explain the details of this image of the vine. So really kind of this, this kind of divides. 1 through 8, Jesus uses this analogy of the vine. And verses 9 through 17 explain the image that he just used. Right? It kind of elaborates on it, explains it more, gives us more detail. Uh, through the, uh, though the second half is not a direct parallel to the first half, much of the content is repeated or elaborated in some way. What does it mean to be a part of the vine? What does it mean to bear fruit? 9 through 17 are, are detailing that out, right? And some of it was already hinted at in verses 1 through 8. We'll see that as we walk through this passage together, um, that how, how that all comes together. Let's go ahead and read this then. With this in mind, let's read this passage and really dig into what Jesus is saying here. He begins this way. He says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser, or in other words, maybe the farmer. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Amen. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another." So according to this passage, what does it mean to be a fruit bearer? What does it mean to be a fruit bearer? Be aware, this this passage is not an exhaustive list. But but, but this list will be the points of our sermon today. The passage teaches us that fruit bearers pray. 
fruit bearers obey, they love, they make disciples, they experience joy, and they know the source of their fruit bearing. Finally, we will see in this passage that there's also a warning given against not bearing fruit. So having kind of understood, uh, at least in part, what's going on in this analogy, let's look at what Jesus is telling us then. What is he explaining to us? What do we learn from this passage? What do we learn about being fruit bearers? Right? As we read this passage, clearly being a fruit bearer is a good thing. Not being a fruit bearer is a bad thing. Right? To not bear fruit is to not really be a Christian. So in a sense, this passage forms very much like the whole book of 1 John forms a, forms a test on how you can know whether or not you are a believer, whether or not you know for sure that you're a Christian. What is some evidence that will be in your life if you are indeed a Christian? First of all, we see fruit bearers pray. Fruit bearers are praying people. Look at verse 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8 says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus uses this phrase in this passage to back up for just a second. He says that you will bear much fruit. Right? So we should expect that there's a diversity of fruits that will, that will come from the life of a believer. This first one is to be a prayerful person. The condition then in verse 7, what is it? What should our prayers look like? In verse 7, the condition is, if you abide in me, right? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It's a really important distinction to understand. This is not, if you're a Christian, ask whatever you want, you get it. Right, So if I'm a believer, I can go to, my, go to my prayer closet and say, Lord, I wish for a million dollars. And he goes, well, you asked it. Okay, here you go. God is not a genie in a bottle. Right? The condition here is, if you abide in me. And then in verse 16, very similarly expounding on this, he says uh, uh, in verse 16, um, so whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. It's asking in his name. This is not some kind of magic formula for answered prayer. It's not like, well, if I said, I said in Jesus' name. So I should get it, right? It's not what this is talking about. Rather, it's a statement about the reality that someone who is faithful or abides in the Lord will pray in line with the will of God. Thus, all their prayers will be done. Jesus taught us in, in, in the Lord's Prayer, he taught us to pray, Thy will be done. Thy will be done. If you are abiding in the Lord, if you are, if, you are, if you are following the Lord and you are pursuing Him, you are faithful to Him, and you're really praying in the name of the Lord, you'll be praying for what He wants. Will you not? He asks us a few questions here. Do you pray for things that the Lord wants? Do you pray for wisdom? Do you pray for patience? Do you pray for humility? Are you praying for the health of our church? Too often our prayers are selfishly motivated. Those prayers may not be answered because they're not in line with the will of God. What if someone was diagnosed with cancer? This is a tough one. What if someone was diagnosed with cancer and God wanted to use that cancer to draw that person closer to themselves? 
and cause and to, to draw them to depend more on him. Should we pray for that person to be healed? Should we pray for God to take away the thing that he is using to draw that person to himself? It's a tough question, isn't it? I don't want to sound mean. I promise you, I'm not trying to sound mean here. Rather, would it be better for us to pray that that person relies on the Lord, whatever the case may be? What if it's not the will of God to heal them? What would we rather? We'd rather see that person suffer well. That person depend on the Lord no matter what their circumstances may be. Now again, I think that there's an element where there is both, right? The Lord is the great physician. He absolutely can heal, right? So we can absolutely pray, Lord, if it is your will, heal them. We know you can. We know you can. We trust you that you can heal them. However, that's not your will. Pray that that person would depend on you through this circumstance. Maybe you can use me, Lord, to help this person depend on you in the middle of this circumstance. Circumstances can change. Abiding in the Lord is, is, is the true test. Right? Do you spend time in prayer? How much time? Jesus asked the disciples why they could not pray for him, with him for just an hour. Have you ever spent a solid hour in prayer? <clears throat> it's hard to do in our today's society, right? It was hard to do for the disciples. They kept falling asleep. And Jesus said, you can't stay with me for an hour? How important is prayer to you? When we pray, we are giving up our will to his will. We are saying, Lord, it's yours, not mine. It's your will, not mine. I'm trusting you. I don't want to trust myself. We are admitting our inability and trusting in his ability. Someone who bears fruit, a true disciple, will be a person whose life is marked by prayer. Now, doesn't, doesn't that just make sense? Right? In salvation, when you give your life to Christ, what are you saying? I can't fix me. I can't save me. You need to do it. Wouldn't then someone who has done that, who has admitted that, wouldn't it make sense then for that same person to continue in that same attitude of prayer? And yet, what do we do? We get that, we get that salvation thing taken care of. It's like, okay, God, I got the rest of this. Rather, a true Christian should be praying in the will of God and seeking for his help. A person who is a true fruit bearer is a person of prayer. Secondly, we see the true fruit, uh, a fruit bearer obeys. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 in, in chapter 15 says this. It says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. What does it mean then to abide in Jesus? It's to keep his commandments. <clears throat> Jesus uh, uh, said, said in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, then verse 10, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Jesus gives us an example for our obedience. He says, Obey my commands just like I have obeyed the Father's commands. The example Jesus gives us for our obedience is His obedience to the Father. When the Father commanded the Son to take on flesh so that He might die a brutal death so that we 
People who were his very enemies might have life. Did Jesus run like Jonah did? No, Jesus obeyed the Father and obeyed with his very life. That's the example of obedience that we are given. The true Christian, the fruit-bearing Christian, seeks to be obedient to all of Scripture. When Scripture commands that we abstain from drunkenness, the disciple does not try to find a loophole. Oh, he wasn't talking about drinking hard liquor. He was talking about wine, right? Or he wasn't talking about this. He was talking about this. But the, the true Christian doesn't try to find a loophole, right? The true Christian obeys out of a desire to respond in worship. When Scripture commands us to be good stewards of our money and to be wise with our finances, the disciple takes a pass on the lottery. The disciple says, if I need to be wise with my finances, I need to not play the lottery. That's not wise spending. They avoid, they don't, they, that the person does not also avoid paying off credit card debt. Or that they do avoid credit card debt, or they pay off their credit card debt. They make wise financial decisions. When scripture commands that sexual intercourse is to be exclusively enjoyed within the confines of biblical marriage, the disciple does not look to culture for excuses. Well, that just doesn't apply to that. They don't look to culture for, for excuses, but rather submits to Scripture and moves out of their girlfriend or boyfriend's house. They end that sexual relationship and they pursue a biblical marriage. That's what a true disciple does. Someone who bears fruit, a true disciple, maximizes the authority of Scripture in their life. They see sin for the disgusting filth than it is, and out of worship for their Savior and following His example of obedience to the Father, they obey the commands of Scripture. They're obedient. A true fruit-bearing Christian, a true fruit-bearing disciple, is one who obeys. Fruit bearers also love. We see in this passage. Look, if you look through verses twelve and twelve through seventeen, um, it's very clear. It says, "This is my commandment." Verse twelve: that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus actually, this is interesting. Jesus says, no longer are you servants, you are friends. He says, what's the difference between a friend and a servant? He says, no longer, verse 15, do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. Right? The servant isn't told, well, this is why I'm doing it. This is why I'm telling you. If you've ever had a job, right, your employer doesn't necessarily tell you why they want you to do something. They just tell you to do it. Right? Especially if you're in a corporate job. They're, they kind of tell you, you just do, do it this way. Okay. Right? But a friend, you tell them why. And Jesus is saying, I'm, I've told you why. Right? No longer do I call you servants, verse 15, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not cho choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The fruit-bearing Christian's life should be marked by love for one another. Here Jesus tells, tells them in verse 12 to love one another as I have loved you. 
He gives himself as an example. How does Jesus love us? By sacrificing himself for us. Dying on a cross for his enemies. Raising from the dead to offer life to those who deserve death. And then, those same despicable people, if they truly believe in him, he calls them friends. That's how Jesus responds to us. This is the type of love we are to have for one another. Here, one another refers to the disciples. Right? He's talking to his disciples. You must love one another. Right? And, and so he's talking to the disciples, to believers. One another then should be understood as Jesus commanding us to love fellow believers. Thinking more specifically, right? It's kind of hard to sacrificially love a Christian that you've never met on the other side of the, on the, other side of the world, is it not? Let alone on another, in another part of the state of Texas, right? It's hard to do that. So what is this talking about? How can we love one another? So who are we to love? Does not our one another include our church family? If someone was to tell me that they like Jesus but do not like the people of the church, according to this passage, how could they possibly be true believers? How could they? If you're a true believer, if you're a fruit-bearing Christian, you love one another. Amen. So how do you show your love for your one another's? Do you love those in our church? How do they know you love them? It's a good question. We, 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 we enjoy making excuses and assume that it's the other person's responsibility to show love. Well, they haven't shown me love, so why should I show them love? Right? Blame shifting is not going to help you be obedient to this command. We are a small enough church that every person should know that every other person loves them. When someone is hurting, are you praying for them? When someone needs help, are you offering your time and resources? When someone needs discipleship, are you the first person to ask them to get lunch with you? What about the church as a whole? When opportunities come, when opportunities arise, are you ready to help? Or is that someone else's job? Fruit bearers, that is true disciples, love one another. Fourth, we see that fruit bearers make disciples. Fruit bearers make disciples. Especially in verse 16. Look at this. It says, you do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. That is, given you a task that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. That language is very similar to what's in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. Underlying this bearing of fruit, there is a strong idea that bearing fruit includes primarily making disciples, though it also includes all these other aspects. One of the most important ways we are called to bear fruit is by making disciples. Verse 8 tells us that this brings glory to the Father. Amen. Verse 16 again reminds us that the task of making disciples is closely tied with prayer as well. Look again at verse 16. It pointed you to go and bear fruit that your fruit should, should abide so that, right? Go and bear fruit. Go and make disciples so that whatever you ask, 
in my name. And whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Prayer and disciple-making are so closely linked. So what does it mean to make disciples? There's essentially two aspects. Now, in the scriptures, there's not, these aspects are not really separated. We have tended to separate them. So when you think of this, think of it as two sides of the exact same coin. Right? It's not one without the other. It should never be one without the other. Both should always be taking place. There's essentially two aspects. First, there's sharing the gospel. And second, there's helping fellow believers grow in their faith. Every single Christian is called to share their faith. If you are a Christian, you have a story. If you are a Christian, you should know how to become a Christian. Right? If you became a Christian, usually you're probably not like, well, I don't know how I became a Christian. I don't know, I just woke up one day and there I was. It doesn't work like that. Right? There's going to be a conscious decision. I believe this. I choose this. There's a conscious decision that takes place. If you are a Christian, you should know at least that. You may not have every other answer. That's okay. That's okay. If you know those things, you can share that with someone. You don't have to be eloquent and have a hundred verses memorized in order to share the gospel. You just need to be obedient. You just need to be obedient. Every Christian should also seek to be intentional about making disciples. If you have friends or family that are not believers, are you praying for them? Are you praying that God will use you to share the gospel on a regular basis? Are you inviting non-Christians into your home to help open gospel conversations? On the second side of making disciples, you are also to actively seek out younger believers to pour your life and experience into them. Right, making disciples is not just someone gets saved. That person is then a disciple, and now they need to be discipled to grow in their discipleship. Every single one of us needs that. Uh, are, are you seeking out younger believers to pour your life and experience into? I firmly believe that every single Christian should have one, at least one person that they are being discipled by. There are, uh, excuse me, I'm going to read here. <laughs> I firmly believe that every Christian should have one person that they are being discipled by uh, or, or get, receiving discipleship from and one person that they are actively discipling, at least. To disciple someone means to show them how to live the Christian life. To show them how to be a godly father, a godly mother, a godly husband, a godly wife, a godly employer, a godly employee. To help them learn how to pray. To show them how to read their Bibles. To help them to develop godly disciplines. If you do not have someone pouring into you, take the initiative and say, hey, I need help. Help me out. Don't wait for somebody else to come to you. You need to be obedient and be discipled. If you are not discipling someone right now, look around this room and find someone that you would like to pour into. Find that person right after the service. Say, hey, I'd like to take you out to lunch. I'd like to take you out to lunch and, have, and, and talk with you. What, what can we do? What a great way to build love for one another, right? This is tied to loving one another too. And to build those relationships so we, where we grow in love for one another. 
Fifth, we see that fruit bearers experience joy. A, a fruit bearer, we, uh, a true disciple, is a disciple maker. And, and fifth, we see fruit bearers experience joy. Jesus says in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The word full there is to be complete. That your joy may be complete. Many are on a quest for happiness. Happiness in a relationship, in a job, in a possession. Such pleasures are fleeting. Eventually, the relationship that you are depending on for happiness will fail you. After all, they're a sinner. The job will never satisfy. The possessions will never give lasting happiness. Just ask my 14-month-old. Right? As soon as we get a new toy. <gasps> Yay! And then two weeks later... Where's the next one, right? New stuff doesn't fix it. Now for my son, it could be just a five cent car where for all he cares, right? Or a new box to play with, right? For, for us, it might be, I gotta have a boat. I will never be happy until I get that boat. I'll never be happy until I get that sports car. If you're constantly searching for stuff to fulfill you, it never, ever will. <laughs> If you're constantly looking for people to fulfill you, they never will. I've said this before, um, I've heard this before, and I've said this before, that, that, uh, that putting people on that kind of a pedestal, it's idolatry. Say, oh, this, this woman completes me. She makes me who I am. If I was to ever lose her, it would just be over. It's idolatry. Now again, that person can be very valuable to you. But if they're more valuable than Jesus, you've made an idol out of that person. That person is a sinner. Anyone who's been long, married for longer than a year knows that their spouse is a sinner. Right? <laughs> they're going to fail you. Ron doesn't know that. Ron doesn't know that. Just, good, good call. Good move. Good one, <laughs> he just Ron. saved himself. He's not sleeping on the couch. <laughs> Good job, Ron. Um, no, so uh, but we, we know this, right? That, that they are a sinner. They will fail you, right? I will fail my wife. There will be times when she will get upset with me because I'm a knucklehead. Amen. Amen, indeed. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? I will, if my wife is looking for happiness in me and only me, I will fail her. There's only one person who can give true joy. Joy is different than happiness. Joy is not a circumstance. Joy is a state of being despite circumstance rather than a reaction to circumstances. In Jesus, the one thing, in Jesus, the one thing we truly need is met in him alone. Amen. We need a savior. We need meaning. That all comes from Jesus because he's the only one that can bear the burden. Because he's God. Jesus gives the believer complete joy because he is the Savior. We don't, we're not just waiting. We're not here just waiting for our joy to be complete someday in the future. Right? We're not waiting for someday in the future Jesus will, Jesus will make everything fine and we'll have complete joy. Jesus tells us, you will have it now. I want you to have my joy, and that joy will be complete. 
Why? Because he's the Messiah. He can give that kind of completion, that kind of joy. Along with this, fruit bearers also know the, know the source and result of their fruit bearing. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. A fruit-bearing Christian, a true believer, not only has all these things that mark them, they also know where the source of that, of that, of that fruit-bearing is from. Right? A fruit-bearing Christian doesn't say, you know what? I'm a disciple-maker because I'm awesome. Because I am so cool that I make, I, 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 got, I'm, I got such a great personality. Every time I talk to people, they all receive Jesus because I'm great. A true disciple, a true fruit-bearing disciple understands that when disciples are made, it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with Jesus. Amen. That the only reason, that just like, just like Nicole's plant, the only reason a leaf can continue to have growth is by being connected to the vine. The vine provides the nutrients. The fruit, I cannot bear fruit on my own. Don't lie to yourself. You cannot bear fruit on your own. You need to have Jesus. All of this fruit is from Jesus. And finally, we have a warning. Verse 2 and verse 6, there's a warning about those who do not bear fruit. Jesus gives a warning of, in verse 2, he says, Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So those branches that do not produce fruit are cut off completely. And verse 5 continues, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you are not a fruit-bearing person, if you are not a Christian who is bearing fruit, you are not a Christian. There's not a middle ground here where there's, there's some Christians that don't bear any fruit. There's some Christians that bear a little bit of fruit or whatever. There's, there's, there's no place in that in Jesus' theology here. If you are a Christian, you will be a fruit-bearing Christian. Now again, I'm not saying that there's never going to be a season in your life where things are going to be a little bit shakier. Where things might not happen as much as you want it to. That's part of discipleship. That's part of growing in Christ. That's part of being a part of the church and growing together with one another. But what this passage does do is give us a warning. Are you bearing fruit? If not, be warned. Are you bearing fruit? Basically, this list is a test of whether or not you are truly a Christian. You may have come to church all your life, but have never borne any fruit. According to this passage, it's very likely that you might not be a Christian, and that you still stand in need of a Savior. As verse 2 and verse 6 tells us, there are eternal consequences for rejecting the gospel. If you're going to follow Jesus, there will be evidence. If you're not sure if you're a Christian, if you are a true follower of Jesus, 
If you're not sure that you are a true follower of Jesus, please do not leave today without believing in and submitting to Jesus Christ. As we close, we open up a time of invitation. We already saw there's a warning here. If you're not sure if you're a believer, talk to someone. I would love to talk to you before you leave today. So we can know for sure whether or not you're a believer. Or at least, at least we can walk through that and talk to you about it. Maybe you're, maybe you're here and you're not a member of the church at this point. Maybe God is calling you to do that. This is an opportunity to respond to that. Come and find me and I'd love to chat with you about what, how, how we, we, can, we can make that happen. Maybe today you're, you're hearing this list and you're saying, there's some fruit that I'm not bearing. There's some aspects of fruit that I'm not bearing or that, or I, or that I struggle with. Use this time as an opportunity to repent. Use this time as a time to dedicate those things to the Lord as the Holy Spirit leads you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for a, a challenging passage. Lord, it doesn't let us go uh, easily. God, I pray that you would help us to hear your word and to be obedient. I pray now during this time of invitation, Lord, that you, you would lead people to respond as you have called them to respond. In your name, amen. Amen. Please stand.